Good morning, everyone. My name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, you have caught us in the third week of a four-part series looking at some women in Scripture who we should all consider heroes. Um, and we started our journey by looking at Rahab. That was a few weeks ago. If you don't know Rahab's story, it's awesome. And then we were in uh, Ruth last week. And this morning, we are together in the book of Esther with Esther. And so if you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, we are Christians who gather together every week uh, right now in this space. And we open up this ancient book that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation because we believe that we have in it God's very word. Um, and there's a lot of new ideas in the world today, but this thing has stood the test of time um, because God's word endures forever. Amen? And so we carve out time to sit under God's word, to read it, to hear from it, and to encounter the God of the Bible. Um, and we are so grateful that in a world of, of shifting sand, we've got a rock in God and in God's word to cling to. And so I'm excited about this book this morning and walking through the book of Esther with you all. So um, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to Esther. We're going to move throughout Esther this morning, looking at a bunch of uh, different texts. But I will begin by reading what is for probably the most famous verse from Esther, and it's Esther 4, verse, uh, verse 14. Um, so this is Esther 4, 14. We'll read it now, and then we'll catch it again in a few minutes. Esther 4, 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The book of Esther is an incredible book. It is um, a book that is, uh, has tremendous historical controversy. Uh, during a World War II um, in Germany, if you were caught with a copy of the book of Esther, it was a, an immediate sort of, uh, uh, you were treasonous and insurrecting, right? Because this book has, uh, has got something powerful to say, especially to those who are in power, especially those who are seeking to threaten the Jewish people. This book of Esther um, is the kind of book that uh, has kind of been passed through time and is reflected on every single year. In the Jewish community, every year, just a couple of months ago in, uh, in March, uh, they celebrate Purim. And Purim involves reading the book of Esther and retelling this story because this story is so incredible. And it raises all kinds of questions as we'll get into as we move forward this morning. So I want to kind of front load some of those questions in preparation for our time together. Do you ever kind of question where you're at in the season of life that you're in? Why are you where you are in your life? Why do you have the kinds of gifts that you have? You notice that you're good at some things that other people aren't good at and that other people are good at things you're not good at. Why are you gifted the way that you are? Why do you have the opportunities that you have in front of you? We know that not everybody gets every opportunity provided to them, but some people do, and we get different kinds of opportunities. And the ones that come to us, why is it that those opportunities come to us? Why did you have to go through what you went through? 
I know that if we could sit around and tell the story of our lives, we would discover that in our own stories is a sort of multitude of ways in which we have been sinned against or ways that we have sinned, um, things that we have gone through that, uh, that people would say, I can't believe you went through that. such such a unique story. And at the same time, you went through it. Why did you go through what you've gone through? And why are you here in this moment, in this building, on this Sunday? And I want to say that none of the answers to those questions are accidents. And so we're going to think about that together as we go through the book of Esther. I'm so excited to tell this story this morning. So let me give you an idea of how we'll spend our time. I want to tell the story of the book of Esther, and so I'll walk you through it. You will leave this morning understanding the story, and then we will zoom in on Esther, and we will pull out a few things that make her heroic and reflect on them together as it pertains to our lives. So we begin this morning by just telling the story of this book that's in front of you. And I just really, I really love this story. Um, So the year is 586. And Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the Babylonians, has taken over Jerusalem and has taken God's people, the Jewish people, into exile. And exile has begun. They they don't have their land anymore. They are now brought into exile, and they are now serving at the uh, whims of another leader. Thirty years goes by, and a guy named Cyrus, leader of the Persians, takes over the Babylonians. And when Cyrus takes over, he allows the Jewish people to return to their home if they want to. In the Bible, if you're reading the book of Esther, the setting of the book of Esther takes place around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. And you have this strange thing, which is that some of the Jewish people had been born in exile. Some of them in exile in Babylon and now in Persia like have, have grown and, and developed jobs and customs and ways of living so that they don't want to return. And so when we find the book of Esther, we, we see in, the, in Susa, which is like in Iran, modern-day Iran, um, we see a group of people, some Jewish people, who decided to stay under Persia's reign. And in this story of Esther, amongst these exiled Jews living under Persian reign, we meet an interesting cast of characters. We meet a guy named Mordecai. Mordecai is Jewish. He's an Israelite. And we're introduced to him in chapter 3, verse 5. We discover that Mordecai, this Jewish man, has an orphan, his cousin, who has lost her parents. And her name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. She will be later known by Esther, but she is this beautiful young woman that Mordecai has been taking care of and watching after. We discover this king of Persia. His name is Xerxes. You see his name also as Ahasuerus in the text. So when you see the name Ahasuerus, that's talking about Xerxes. Xerxes is an all-powerful king with a hot temper and a taste for drinking a lot and partying a lot. We discover he has a wife, Xerxes does. Her name is Vashti. She's also a beautiful woman, and she is the wife of Xerxes. We'll also be introduced to a guy named Haman. Haman is an Amalekite. He's not Persian. He's not Israeli. But he is also the right-hand man of the king. And those are our cast of characters, Mordecai and, and Esther. We've got Haman, the bad guy, Xerxes and his wife, Vashti, and the story begins with a massive party. 
King Xerxes throws a massive party. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about massive parties. Maybe you've had big parties before. Maybe you've had 30, 40 people over to your place. Maybe that feels massive. Maybe you've been to a big wedding. But King Xerxes throws a 180-day party. It's a big party. And he is at the center of the party. And he is drunk because he enjoyed getting drunk. And he's known to have a wicked temper. And in the middle of this party with all of his friends and so many people, he wanted to show his friends, his drunken friends, he wanted to show them his wife. So he sends a message to Vashti. He takes his advisors and he goes to his advisors and says, go tell my wife to come out here and to sort of flaunt her beauty in front of everybody. I want everyone to oogle at her and stare at her how beautiful she is. I want them to gawk in her, these drunken men. And Vashti says to King Xerxes, I will not do that. I will not walk into the center of this party and I will not do what you're asking me to do. Xerxes' advisors come back to him and they tell him, hey, Vashti's refusing to obey you. You need to get a new queen. And so Xerxes decides, I can't allow anybody at this party and anybody in Persia to find out, to know that if you're my wife and I command you to come out and to strut yourself in front of everybody, I, I got, they got to know you can't disobey me. If you disobey me, I will replace you. And so chapter 1, verse 19, they put out, uh, uh, they, they say we need a new queen, and they launch a global beauty contest. To my knowledge, it's the only beauty pageant in the Bible. And all of the young girls from all of Persia, the, the beautiful ones, are, are sort of uh, coerced into, invited into, often commanded into participating in this beauty contest for the chief prize, which is to be the new wife of Xerxes, the drunken, angry king. And this young woman named Hadassah, whose name will be Esther, shows up and enters the beauty contest. At this point, here's what we know about her. We know that she lost her parents. We know that she's Jewish. We know that nobody knows that she's Jewish, except for her cousin Mordecai, who's been keeping an eye on her. We know that she's young and she's beautiful. And she shows up to this beauty pageant where she will spend one whole calendar year getting ready to see the king. A year of makeup, a year of hair, a year of beauty, a year of this, a year-long beauty contest. And here's what happens at the end of that year. Groups of women at the end of that year would go in to see King Xerxes at nighttime. They would pleasure the king. And then they'd be sent out in the morning until they were called upon again. And Hadassah, Esther, she is one of these young women. Now, if you're hearing the story, especially if you're thinking about the exile and, and you're thinking about the Jewish people, you know that so far Esther is making some big no-nos in God's world. One, you don't engage with a, a, a pagan king, right? You don't, you don't, you don't go, go into his chambers and you don't 
connect with him. Like you don't, you don't do that. You don't, you don't flaunt your beauty. You don't hide your Jewishness. You, don't, you definitely don't do that. You don't submit to this, but she does. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we discover that Esther, she wins the beauty contest. She wins. She is Xerxes' favorite. And so she becomes the queen. And so now we've got this beautiful, young, secretly Jewish girl who is now the queen of Persia married to Xerxes. And nobody knows she's Jewish except for her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai has been keeping an eye on her. Of course he's been keeping an eye on her. His cousin, who's an orphan, has been under his care for a while, and she's now, she's now at the pleasure of the king, and he remains close to the gate to make sure that she's okay. And as Mordecai is waiting by the gate one day, he hears about this plot to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, if Xerxes gets assassinated, that's, not also, that's also not going to be good for Esther. So what does Mordecai do when he overhears that there's a group of men who work for Xerxes who are thinking about plotting to kill him? Well, Mordecai tells Esther, hey, some of the men are going to try to kill your husband. Esther then tells her husband, and the traitors are hanged. And the Persians, who are famously known for writing everything down, record this in a book. It's a close call for Xerxes and for Esther. And into this moment, we meet our bad guy. His name is Haman. And Haman is such a bad guy that at Purim, when you read the story right, um, in Jewish communities, it is often common when you say the name Haman for the entire audience to boo and to hiss and to shake rattles because of how bad Haman is. Haman is the right hand of the king. He's not Persian. It's important that you know that. He is an Amalekite, which means he descended from the king Agag. Now, this is why that's important for you, for you Bible kind of nerds out there uh, like me, right? Um, uh, you've got Haman, who's, a descendant, who's an Amalekite descendant of Agag. You've got Mordecai, who's a Benjaminite, who is descended from the lineage of Saul. And if you go back into 1 Samuel and you read about Saul and King Agag, you'll discover a very brutal story. In fact, we just read it this last week um, together in our Bible reading plan that involves, like, hacking up of a king. It's not good. These two groups are rivals. They do not like each other. But Haman is the right-hand man of the king. And Xerxes says that Haman is to be respected. In fact, so much so that what people are to do when they see Haman, his right-hand man, is they're to bow down in his presence. So one day, Haman shows up to the palace, and there's Mordecai keeping an eye on Esther. And Mordecai is not going to bow down to Haman, and Haman notices this. Who's that guy who won't bow down to me? And Haman finds out, oh, he's, he's Jewish. Which gets Haman's wheels spinning about their conflicting histories. And so Haman, realizing that Mordecai is a Benjaminite related to Saul, and the rivalry that, that it ensued, he decides that this is his opportunity to crush not just Mordecai, but to crush all of the Jews who are living in Persia. So Haman goes to Xerxes, 
and he tells Xerxes, there's a group of people who are in your midst, and they're Jewish people, and they don't listen to what you say. And if we take them out, if we kill all of them, I'll donate a bunch of money. Well, again, Xerxes, not knowing that his wife, Esther, is Jewish, he decides, fine by me. And so in chapter 3, verse 10, he gets, Haman gets King Xerxes, he gets him to write a decree that all of the Jewish people would be killed. On March 7th, all of the Jews would be eliminated. And the King Xerxes says, if you kill the Jewish people, if you kill them, you get their property. And so this law goes out, this decree in chapter 3, verse 15. And Mordecai finds out that King Xerxes has put a decree on all of the Jewish people, including himself, and he's upset. He's weeping and wailing. Well, Esther has no knowledge of this. She's in the palace. She's doing palace-like things. And some of her servants hear that Mordecai is wailing. And so they tell Esther, there's this guy out there named Mordecai, and he's wailing, and he's sad. And Esther says, go find out what he's sad about. So Mordecai gets a message to Esther. Esther, your husband put out a decree that all the Jewish people are going to be killed. We're all going to die. Haman paid the king for this right. Esther, you got to tell your husband that you're Jewish. And you have to tell your husband that, that he's issued a decree that's going to kill you and all of our people. Well, Esther is terrified that Haman is, sorry, that Mordecai is suggesting that Esther has to save them. Exactly. <clears throat> Let me start from the beginning. So this is sir, so Esther. Um, okay, so uh, Esther's terrified, and she says to Mordecai, "It doesn't it doesn't work the way you think it does. This is my relationship with my husband. Um, he hasn't called me into his court in thirty days. I I can't just go into his court because if I go into his court." Anybody who just goes into his court presumptuously, like, he'll kill you. That's what he does. If I go into his court and he kind of points his scepter towards me, then I might be okay, but, but that's not how this works. He hasn't called me in 30 days. And so she says to Mordecai, the only way for this to work out is he has to invite me in. If I just go in without being called, I will be killed. And Mordecai says this in Esther chapter 4, a text that we uh, began with. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Mordecai responds to Esther. He replies this. He says to Esther, Esther, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, you think you're safe because you're in the palace? You're going to die too. 
And the reason that you are where you are is for this particular moment. This is why you're here. The Jewish people are in trouble. But God has brought you into this moment. Mordecai sees the moment for what it is. He says, if you go in, you might die. If you don't go in, you will die. And so Esther says something incredibly heroic in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. She says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So much courage. So Esther goes into the inner court And she survives. She walks in and Xerxes looks at her, holds out his staff and says to her, what is it that you want? And she says, I want to have a party. And he's like, good, because I love parties. (laughs) She's like, it's going to be me, you, and Haman. He's like, that sounds great. We're going to drink a bunch. It'll be a blast. So she has a feast. She's smart. Because she knows that her husband loves a party. So he says, okay. And in chapter 5, verse 6, they eat this meal. And he's, the meal's going great. Haman is so honored to be there, right, that at the middle of the dinner, Xerxes says, what do you want, Esther? What do you want? And she does something that's amazing to me. She says, you know what I want? What? She says, I want another party. When? Tomorrow. Same people. Let's run it back. Like, all right, great. Let's do it again. So they agreed the next day to have another feast. Like, again, Haman must feel so honored. He's having two parties in a row with, with the wife and the king. And he's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's a wild political move, by the way. Like, this is not what I would have done at all. She's so strategic. The king is happy. Haman is flattered. It's brilliant. Haman's on cloud nine. But there's one thing that's still bothering Haman. Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't honor him publicly. So Haman goes home and tells his friends and his wife, things are going great at work. The king's fantastic. The queen loves me. We're having a party. In fact, we got another one tomorrow. It's going to be great. But Mordecai won't bow down. And his wife, Haman's wife, she's like a real piece of work. She says, you know what you should do? You should kill Mordecai tomorrow publicly. And he's like, That's a great idea. So before he goes to bed, he tells his servants, go go build the gallows. Go set up an opportunity for Mordecai to be hung. And then he goes to sleep peacefully. The gallows are being built. Well, that same night, the night before the second party, while Haman is sleeping and the gallows are ready, Xerxes can't sleep for some reason. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. Um, I don't know anybody that drinks warm milk. I've never known anybody that drinks warm milk. I feel like that's just a tale. Like some people turn on the television. Some people will do some reading. Um, I don't know what you read. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. You probably don't do what Xerxes did. Um, He gets a history book out. He can't sleep, so he says, bring out the history books. Read me the histories. And and as he's... he's, uh, can't sleep, they start reading the history, and they start reading the story of the assassination plot that we talked about earlier. 
And as they're reading the assassination plot, he hears about the person responsible for him living, which is Mordecai. And so Xerxes hears about Mordecai and how Mordecai is the one who discovered the plot and then rescued him. And so he asks the question, how is Mordecai rewarded for saving my life? And the answer is he wasn't. So he's got an idea, which is how do I reward Mordecai? And then he sees Haman in the courts as Haman's looking at the gallows. Haman's going, I can't wait to kill Mordecai in public. And Xerxes is thinking, man, how do I honor Mordecai? How do, so, so then Haman is called into the inner court with Xerxes. Xerxes and Haman, they have a sort of standoff where in which Xerxes is only wondering one thing, how do I honor uh, Mordecai? And Haman's only wondering one thing, how do I kill Mordecai in front of everybody? And so uh, Xerxes tells Haman, asks Haman a question. He says, Haman, how do I honor a man who's done something great? And Haman's like, that's easy. You know, I tell you, here's what you do. Step one, you get him some robes. Step two, you put him on a horse. Step three, you give him a crown. Step four, you parade him for everyone to see how great he is. And Xerxes says, that's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. And you've got to imagine Haman's response. Haman's got to now do this. He's got to publicly honor Mordecai. And so he does it. And he's filled with rage when he walks in that evening to dinner party number two. And at this dinner party number two, when they're eating and drinking, Xerxes once again looks at Esther and says, Esther, what do you want? And Esther says, Someone's trying to kill me and my people. And Xerxes says, who? And she says, Haman. Well, now the king is furious. And this guy named Harbona, I love this, Harbona, out of nowhere says, Harbona says, hey, Haman just built some fresh gallows the other day for Mordecai. <laughs> Remember that guy you honored? He built, he, yeah, he built that thing to kill him. And Harbona, just right, you know, just really aware of what's happening here. So Xerxes says, oh, yeah? And he kills Haman on those gallows that he put up. And he made a new edict. And the new edict was that when the Jews were to be attacked, Xerxes wanted the people to know that he was going to stand with the Jews. That anybody who tried to kill them, that they were permitted to fight back and they could plunder anyone who attacked them. And the Jews became popular. People started coming out of the woodwork and identifying as Jewish. People started coming out of the shadows and the Jewish people began to rise once again to notoriety. And that rescue plan, that story, that moment, that, that the Jews being saved is celebrated to this day every year by Jewish people on Purim. And that whole story of the rescue of God's people hinders on one orphaned woman, Esther. This beautiful, flawed, bad decision-making, but courageous woman who is sacrificial and savvy, compromised, yet the hero. And so I just want to spend a couple minutes as we kind of wrap up. I want to pull some things out for us that, are, that, that this text, I think, has to say to us. And this is the first thing I want to say. Um, Esther was in the right place at the right time. 
And part of the point of the story of Esther is that you are too. God has put you where God has put you for God's purposes. It may have been a bumpy ride for some of you. You may have made a bunch of mistakes to get where you are. But God has you right where God wants you right now. Commentators agree that Esther is compromised. You read feminist commentators, and they can't stand Esther in chapter 1 and 2. Why? Because she enters a beauty contest. She submits to the high eunuch. She does everything she's asked to do. She capitulates to the system. She's compliant. She's sold out. You look at conservative rabbis throughout history, and they also think that she's compromised. She doesn't do what Daniel and his friends do. She doesn't stand up and declare that she's Jewish instantaneously. She, she marries a king who's pagan. She does the wrong thing. She doesn't follow the Torah. She sleeps with this man she's not married to and then marries him, right? right? So, so liberal theologians and conservative theologians throughout history agree Esther makes bad decisions. And it is true when you read Esther 1 and 2, Esther gets off to a terrible start. Anybody else in this room feel like you've gotten off to a terrible start? But God stays with her, grows with her, and turns her into a hero. And here's why that's important. Because no matter the mistakes you made that got you here, God can redeem your story. I want to address for a moment those of you who feel like you've made too many mistakes. When you think God can't use you because of your past, you, you miss the story of the Bible. You're imposing your own message on the Bible. Because you think the message of the Bible is God blesses and saves those who make great decisions. But that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who don't deserve it. And even people who don't fully appreciate it after they get it. God does not waste your failures. He takes our broken pasts and uses them for himself. Some of you went through hell to be where you're at now. And some of you don't know that the reason you've gone through what you've gone through is to help others who are going through it now. We have some men in our church who've gone through some difficult stuff, and we've got some, a recovery ministry for men who are struggling because there are men who are like, I've been through hell fighting some battles and temptations, and if you want help, I'm here for you. Right? Sometimes you throw a milkshake at your wife's face, and you stand up and tell everybody about it. This <laughs> ha happened recently. But you do that so that you do that to remind those who are here who struggle with anger and self-control that they're not alone, and there's hope for them. Maybe you went through a messy divorce and there's someone in this church who, who, who's wrestling with the, the, their own experience that they're going through and, and not sure where to turn for help. We make mistakes in the past and we seek God's forgiveness and we receive grace and we also receive new purpose for the ways that God will redeem what we've gone through. 
I love this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this is just a kind of a little illustration where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are ourselves are comforted by God. Isn't that beautiful? He says, God, God's comforting us and we're struggling, and we, we, we get that comfort from God, and what do we do with the comfort of God? We then turn and give it to those who are struggling. Some of you, I, you just need to hear this. Stop obsessing about a past that you cannot change. Surrender it to the Lord. Recognize that God is working. I don't know if you know this. In the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned. God is silent. God is absent. And sometimes we wonder where God is working. Esther as a book exists in part to remind us that God is working even when we're not sure how or where God is working. Amen. But God is always working. And there are no coincidences. Secondly, Esther uses her position for the kingdom, not for self-promotion. Esther could protect herself, right? She could, she could protect herself. She could say nothing. She's married to the king. She could just ride this thing out. She could reject what Mordecai is saying. She could do that. Or she could use the position she has been put in for the kingdom of God, even though it might cost her everything. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you most want from where you are in your life right now? What do you want from where you're trying to go? Think about your life, your goals, your work, your family. Let me ask you an honest question. Like, ask, ask yourself this question. Am I working for my glory or for God's? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? Have you ever thought about the reason that God has brought you where you are? Do you think God has done it for your own sake? Does God intend everything God has given you just so that you can practice self-indulgence? No. Never. Is this what God is like? No. God has not done everything just to give you self-pleasure. Whatever God gives you is yours, not to hoard for yourself, but for the good of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. A Christian seeks God's kingdom before they seek their own. Esther says, if I risk it, I could lose everything. Mordecai says, if you don't risk it, you will. Some of you are like, all right. Some of you are convicted. That's the Holy Spirit, not me. You're convicted and you feel a sense of, all right, I have responsibility to use the gifts God has given me, the position he's given me, my life, and, and I, have a, I have a response to use it for God's glory. But, but Trevor, I'm unaware of any plots to kill the Jews. Like, I, I don't really know what this looks like in practice. I just want to give you a couple of pieces of advice. Um, this is just, this is, as I've been praying through this week, this is what I, I want to say to you. Um, share the gospel with the people God has put in your life. You are the best equipped to do so, and you're there. Some of you don't understand that you might be the only Christian that people know. So take a risk 
In this analogy, I'm Mordecai, you all are Esther. Take a risk. Two, use your gifts and skills and talents and resources for the good of the kingdom to bring the gospel. I want to welcome back, Dr. Bob Hamilton is back here. Um, Just returned from Africa, is that right? Just returned from Africa. Here's Chuck Wood, right? Just returned from South America recently, right? We, um, those are two brothers you could talk to. And I know more, more I did just the first that come to mind. But more of you could talk. They, they, they have used their gifts, not just for their own kingdoms, but for God's kingdom. You've been gifted. Use your gifts, not just for yourself, but for the kingdom of God. Three, give away what you have. Different three. Give away what you have. Some of us, if we're honest, we just have too much. We are not as generous as we should be. Does the way you spend your money point to your attempt to build the kingdom of God or your own kingdom? You know, they say that the clearest way to look at this is just look at your your calendar and your checkbook. I don't know if we do checkbooks, your checking account. Your calendar and your your checking account. Those will tell the story of what it is you prioritize. And give time away. Fourth, give your time away to pour into others. I just sometimes wish that we could all see both all of the resources we have in this room and all the needs we have in this room. I wish we just God would just reveal that because it would be amazing what we could accomplish if we, if we knew that. Okay, third. Now third. Um, Esther became great because she wasn't trying to be great. She wasn't trying to be a hero. She's got this moment that makes her a hero, but greatness to God isn't, doesn't come by people who set out to primarily say, I'm trying to be known as someone who's great. If, you're, if, you're, if your goal is, see, even, even service of God can sometimes end up in being this sort of self-fulfilling, sort of self-centered proposition. I want to be great so that people think that I'm great. Esther doesn't do that. She risks her life. And that's what makes her significant. My, my, I, I would challenge all of you, stop looking for significance and start looking for faithfulness. One of my favorite texts uh, is The Great Divorce. And I mention this maybe once a year I tell this. But in The Great Divorce, there's this great moment where um, they're in heaven and they hear the sort of celebration of this woman. And the sort of thinking of it is that in heaven they must be celebrating Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they discover that uh, it's actually not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's Sarah Smith from Golders Green. And it's like, who is Sarah Smith from Golders Green? And the story is told of Sarah Smith that like Sarah Smith, nobody knew who she was. In the eyes of the world, she was insignificant, but she loved well everyone who was put in front of her. She served God faithfully, and she may not be a big deal in the world. She's a big deal in heaven because of her faithfulness. Don't aim for significance, aim for faithfulness. Esther was a powerful woman. She faced and helped avert a a potential genocide of her people. She plays politics masterfully. She became rich beyond her wildest dreams. And even though her beauty was the reason she became a part of the king's harem, she achieved all of these things without the advantage of being from a noble birth, She didn't have friends in high places. She didn't have inherited wealth. She certainly didn't have social prestige. She did it in spite of being a born member of an outcast people whose future rested on the whims of rulers more interested in personal power than serving their people well. 
Esther is a hero. But the goal of Esther is not to say, be like Esther. This is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. Don't go try to be like Esther. The point of the Bible is not for you to try to act better. This is my fourth and final point. We need more than Esther to be like Esther. Here's the danger. Some of you are going to leave this morning and go like, you know what? I'm going to be like Esther. I'm going to go tell my coworkers. I'm going to go take some risks. I'm going to go steward my gifts. I'm going to go be more generous. I'm going I'm to share my time. You're going to do those things. And some of you are going to do that, and it's going to destroy you when you fail. Here's the problem with examples like Esther. If you get inspired by an example like Esther, and you hear a sermon, and you think the point of the sermon is be like Esther, then then what what you're hearing is that the basic motivation is that, that we're trying to guilt each other into being like Esther. And if guilt is the motivation, that will ultimately wear off and it will destroy you. The question is, how do you change so that you might be more like Esther? Esther is not an example to follow. She is a a signpost to point to someone else. In every religion in the world, the, the religions try to figure out, how do I get from where I'm at to God? How do I get right with God? And what we need is someone to intercede for us. What we need is for someone to make things right between us and God. Esther identifies with the people of God, and she rescues the people of God. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus identified with us, left his palace, left his position, Right, was born into our world, joined in humanity with us fully, took on condemnation. For Esther, there's a risk, like a risk of sacrifice. For Jesus, it's not a risk. He gives up his life. It costs him his life. He dies for us before we do anything. If you see Jesus as Savior, it will change you. See, because when Jesus becomes your security, when he becomes your identity, when he becomes your worth, then you won't hold on to your own kingdom. Do you see that? Like if you're clutching your kingdom and I say, let go of it for the kingdom of God, you go, okay, and you try, but you can't. And you'll feel guilty. And you'll show up here week after week feeling like a failure. But if you see that God has died for you because he loves you to set you free from having to hold on to that, to finding any identity or hope in that, then you will have what you most need to let go of that. You won't care about your failures or your self-promotion. You won't want to be great in the world's eyes. Why would you want to be great in the world's eyes when Christ, the Son of God, looks on you, died for you, loves you, forgives you, redeems you, puts his spirit inside of you, and promises to never leave you or forsake you? When you get that, do you think you're going to care about what Jerry in accounting thinks of you? You see how ludicrous that is? And you won't need to justify yourself anymore. The point of the Bible is to get you to see Jesus because he's the one who changes lives. He gave up his life for yours. Didn't just risk it, gave it up. 
so that you might have peace with God. Do you have peace with God? You can. Do you know salvation? Do you know that you're forgiven and saved? You can. Do you know that you're forgiven, fully and completely forgiven? Do you know that you have life with God starting today forever? You can. You can know all of those things with confidence if you would just see your need for God, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ. You'll never be like Esther if you try to be like Esther. But if you see Christ, he'll change you so that you might walk in that direction more faithfully. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Esther, this sister. I can't wait to have a conversation with Esther. I have all kinds of questions. Her courage, her decision to act sacrificially, her faithfulness, I'm thankful for her. And I just, as I look at her, I just think about Jesus. I think about his courage, his sacrifice, his faithfulness. He redeems and saves us. He is who we need, and we rejoice that we don't have to hold on to our kingdoms. We don't have to live with the guilt and the shame of our broken pasts. We don't have to care what other people think about us. We don't have to do that because we know who we are in Christ. And I pray for those who don't know that this morning, that they would receive and know that gift by turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus. We thank you for Esther and for our time together this morning walking through this incredible book. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to point us again to yourself, that we might encounter you and your faithfulness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.